To understand the aspect of sanctification, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 very briefly, please. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. See the word sanctify? Having made, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The Hebrew, mekudesh, the Greek, hegios, made holy, sanctify. Love your wife, give yourself for your wife the way Christ gave himself for his bride, the church. It is something which is sanctified. Now, the pagan concept that the Greeks had, had a perverted, perverted view of this. They'd go to the temples of Athena, and they would copulate with the Hydros Gamos, the, the, the temple prostitutes, as a way of having some kind of spiritual communion, you understand, in the, in the temples. This was perpetuated with the, in, in the Roman version of this, it became the Thespal Virgins of pagan Rome. And, of course, the institution of the convents, nunneries, came from this. They simply had a pseudo-Christianized version of what had been temple prostitution with the, with the convents. The convents, of course, these idea of monks were a Buddhist idea that were picked up by the Christendom in Alexandria. It was a, you know, and when the church became worldly, it began by hermit, communities of hermits that tried to detach themselves from the world to keep holy in North Africa in the desert. That's how it began imitating the Buddhists. Instead of being in the world, but not of it, they became this hermit thing. And then, of course, later on, things evolved with the Benedictines and so forth, and they became monastic orders, and then you had the women's versions of this. But all you basically wound up having was a pseudo-Christianization of the Hieroscamos, of the festival virgins. It was, it was the complaint of many people in the Middle Ages that Rome had more bordellos than it did churches. And of course, most of the bordellos were convents. These simply convents were basically houses of ill repute for priests. That's what they were. But it goes back to the Hieros Gamos and to the Thespal Virgins. Now, this was simply a continuity of what happened in the pagan world. I don't want to go into it now, but if you read the Catholic mystics, like Teresa of Avila, the nun, they would read the Song of Solomon as erotic literature. When the nuns would take their final vows to be nuns, they would call it a wedding ceremony. Jesus is the, is the bridegroom of a corporate bride. The church is a corporate bride. But they personalized Jesus as a lover, and they began reading the Song of Solomon as erotic literature. Now, this is not a very pleasant subject. If you read the Catholic mystics, they get into some very carnal things with this. And, of course, the priest, because that's Christ's representative, he became the surrogate. So, by having relations like this, what were they doing? The same thing the pagans did, weren't they? But what Paul was coming against is this. Sanctification. He was showing how the marital union was to reflect Christ's relationship with the church. And he was saying, possess your wife in honor and in sanctification. Okay? Not like the pagans. This was a big issue. That you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles, what they came out of. In biblical models of, in the biblical model of, of, of matrimony, it was, 
something like this. You have three kinds of love working in harmony. Eros, Sileo, and Agape. Agape is unconditional love. Unsaved people cannot agape. There's only one place in the New Testament where a non-believer could agape, and that's somebody who's so depraved they can unconditionally love evil. Somebody through demon possession can actually agape evil. But unsaved people cannot agape. The highest form of love that somebody is capable of who is not a believer is filio, brotherly love. I love you because we are going to be companions because of some mutual interest. We both like tennis, we both like Mozart, we both like hunting, or whatever. That's filial love. Then there is eros, erotic love, sexual love. Eros says, I love me, I want you. Now God created all three of these forms of love. But his model was, all three would work in concert with each other. Eros and Filio would enrich Agape, and Agape would enrich Filio and Eros. The pagans had not this concept. They would say, well, this is your mistress. This is your concubine. And the closest they could come to Agape was a form of love called Storga, family love. And that would, of course, be the mother of your children. Paul was coming against this. The Bible does not give any further instruction. It leaves it to individual conscience. What it does is it lays down principles. Once more, the New Testament talks about right doctrine twice as much as it does right conduct. If you have right doctrine, right conduct will be self-evident. Why does the Bible say so little about the subject of sex? Why does it say so little? It doesn't have to. It lays the basis of marital love. When you understand you have to love that woman as Christ loves the church, or you have to submit to that man the way the church submits to Christ, you have a principle. One flesh, love your wife like you love your... Oh, you wouldn't abuse your own body. <laughs> You're not going to abuse your wife. You wouldn't want somebody to physically abuse you. Well, you know, it lays the principle. When you have right doctrine, right conduct is self-evident. You don't need do's and don'ts. You don't need do's and don'ts. It becomes self-evident what you do and what you don't do. That's why the Bible doesn't talk about it. The only place the Bible talks about it is in the Song of Solomon, where it describes erotic acts in marriage with, with poetic symbolism. But even there, what, what is it? It's a type. It's a symbol of Christ's relationship with the church, isn't it? The focus is always the link between the agape, the erotic, and, and, and the agape. Okay. Now, this stuff was totally, totally revolutionary to the Greek way of thinking. But you know what? It is just as revolutionary to contemporary society and its perverted view of sexuality. I'm a product of the 60s, as you can deduce by my age. That was when we had the so-called sexual revolution, the sexual liberation. If they liberated people, how come there's more hang-ups 
about sex today than there ever was before the 60s. <laughs> I need to get out. Liberate what? <laughs> these ideas were totally alien to the thinking of what these people were saved out of. But they're just as alien to what people are being saved out of today. Quite a thing, isn't it? Let's press on. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in verse 6. In the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you and solemnly warned you. For God's not called us for the purpose of impurity, a catharsis, mixture, but in sanctification. Sanctification, if you read the book of Leviticus, the way to sanctification was purification. Lev Tahor, Brali Elohim, created me a clean heart. The road to, the, 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 the means of achieving sanctification was purification. Catharsis, not a catharsis. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. People who don't accept that reject the Holy Ghost. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. He gets the things here that Peter deals with in greater depth. If we're going to be persecuted, let us be persecuted because we are innocent. Don't ever give the world something to use against us. You know, one of the things that the devil is doing, one of the ways he is going to legally manipulate the persecution of the church is through the money preachers on TV. People will see this kind of stuff, this con artistry, and demand laws be changed. Why should these con men with these big limousines and big rings and Rolex watches who are manipulating the poor and unemployed have tax exemptions? Okay? That's what happens. You see what I'm saying? You begin giving the world something to use against us, they will use it. Let them persecute us because we're innocent, not because we're guilty. Peter deals with this in greater depth. We talk about it on the preparing for persecution tape. Now, the love of the brethren. When Christians are being persecuted, <laughs> you'll find a lot more brotherly solidarity. <laughs> it's when we're not being persecuted that we tend to become self-centered. What does that tell you about our old nature? Okay. You know, if there's any church in the affluent West where we still have a freedom, if we are not praying for and trying to help financially churches in persecuted countries, there's a problem. You know, I always let your right hand know what your left is doing, but I don't let a month go by when I don't make a contribution to a ministry involved in helping persecuted Christians. It's only the grace of God that we're not being persecuted. Forget not those who are in prison. You know, that should be a, a, one of the things we should pray for on a very regular basis is the persecuted church. And we all have an obligation to try to help them. But let's continue. 
Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort each other with these words. What is the comfort? The rapture. Today you have people like Rick Joyner saying the rapture is of the devil. One of the arguments, foolish arguments, people are using against the doctrine of the rapture, and the rapture is really just the resurrection, the same event, the meeting in the air, is this. Well, it's only been talked about for the last 150 years. Before 100 years ago or 150 years ago, people didn't believe in this, snatching away. Beam me up, Scotty, to make fun of it. First of all, Forget about what people believed 150 years ago. What did the apostles believe? What did the New Testament right. teach? What did the pre-Nicene church believe? That's, That's the first thing. Right. Second thing is this. How foolish. Look at what the Bible says about the last days. The two books that most deal with the last days, thematically and centrally, are Daniel and Revelation, aren't they? What does Daniel say? He's told... Seal these things up until the time of the end. The very fact that it wasn't believed 150 years ago, and it's only in the last 150 years people began talking about it, that tells you that's the reason to believe it, not disbelieve it. It's being unsealed. You understand? It was sealed to the appointed time. Now, there's no new doctrine in the Bible, no new doctrinal revelation. But what there is, is a clearer understanding of what's already in there by the faithful. That's right. The other book, Revelation, the real name for the book of Revelation in Greek is Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. We get the word apocalypse. You know what apocalypsis means? Unveil. It's veiled. It's supposed to be hidden. Yes. The very fact that we're getting closer to the time when you need to know this stuff, well, that's when it gets unveiled. Amen. You know Amen. what? The very arguments they're using to discredit the doctrine of the rapture, understood biblically, would support the doctrine of that's the rapture. Right. That's right. We're getting a clear of the fact that these things are becoming unveiled and unsealed shows we're getting closer to the time of them happening. Amen. Comfort each other with these words. If they're denying the rapture, how can it be a comfort to us? Now notice this. Those who are asleep. Twice he says that. You've heard me say before, probably, that the Bible never speaks of the biological death of a Christian as death. Unsaved people die. Christians go to sleep. Praise the Lord. Tali Little girl get up, she's asleep. Lazarus is asleep. Unsaved people die. Christians go to sleep. You're not afraid to go to sleep. Why should you be afraid to die? Now, if you're unsaved, you better be afraid to die Amen. because that's death. Amen. Christians just go to sleep. What does it say? Not like those who have no hope. Verse 13. These pagan religions gave people no hope. No hope. I was witnessing to a Buddhist in Allentown, Pennsylvania the other day. And I told him, a lady in India, sun died. This is the teachings of, of the Buddha. 
And she went to Gautama, that was the Buddha's real name, and she said, Oh, Master Buddha, I am greatly grieved for my son, my only child, has died. And my soul cannot endure this grief. He was my only son. What can I do, O teacher? And the Buddha, Gautama says, You must plant an acorn, my daughter. But you must take this acorn from a house where no one has ever died. So she travels the length and breadth of India to find a house where no one ever died, that she may find the acorn and plant it. But after a long time, she came back to the Buddha and said to the Buddha, O Gautama, O teacher, O Master Buddha, I have traveled the length and breadth of all India. I am unable to find even a single house where no one has ever died. And Gautama said to her, You've learned a great lesson, my daughter. Buddha never claimed to have a solution for the problem and the reality of death. Amen. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If a man believes in me, though he die, yet shall he yes. live. Amen. You go to sleep, you wake up. These pagan religions had no solution to the problem of death. And I frankly, I don't blame Buddha. He was reacting against the futility of Hinduism. He was, might have been a man who was just trying to correct what he saw then. But the Buddhism you see today is not even what Buddha taught. It's totally different than what Buddha taught. He was a man in a dark age who was just trying to correct some things in his time. He never claimed to be God or anything like this, but people said that about him. But let's look. Let's understand what Paul is saying here. Now, as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, you know from my other night tapes that the night is the figure of the Great Tribulation, right? Coming like a thief in the night, etc. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them, as suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, they shall not escape. This comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 11. He's basically harking back to Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is as much about the last days as it was Jeremiah's day. And he says this, And they heal the brokenness of my daughter, of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace. But there is no peace. The Hebrew word for peace means wholeness, fullness, shalom. They were saying before the destruction of Jerusalem, Oh, there's wholeness, fullness, everything is right. But there wasn't. Well, that happens again in the last days. When men say peace and security. Now, one example of this is obviously the false peace that will come to the Middle East before Jesus comes. Zachariah says it will be a false peace. But another is, of course, what we see in the church. Peace and security. Shalom. Everything is filled. Everything is right. Everything is what it is supposed to be. But then it comes like a woman in labor. I have this on other tapes. Most of you know it, but I'll just go through it briefly. I talked about it when we did the caveats of the Olivet Discourse. The two most frequent ways the Bible explains what the last days will be like comes from obstetrics and seismology. With seismology, they tell, geologists tell us tectonic plates begin to shift and you have minor tremors that, along a fault line. Those minor shifts only tell you that ultimately the big one is coming. Well, so it is with contractions in maternal labor. You have minor contractions. They only tell you that ultimately the big one is coming. Revelation 12, the man-child. Now, what happens in maternal labor? Well, same as the, the tremors in Los Angeles or, or Tokyo. 
What happens? Is this the one? Is this the one? Oh no, this is another trimmer. Well, the same thing in maternal labor. <clears throat> they seem to ease up a bit, but then they come back again even worse. That's what the last days are like. There will be intermittent periods where things will, 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 will <clears throat> uh, deceivingly seem to improve. But then the contractions come back even worse. The Antichrist, in the beginning, will try to counterfeit the millennium. Okay? He'll make it seem like things are getting better. There'll be intermittent periods where things will seem to look like that. Oh, that's it. No more contractions. But then it comes back again, even worse. Well, that's what the last days will be like. When they're saying peace and security, safety, the end will come. You, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. We don't know the day or the hour that Jesus is coming, but we know what part of the night, what part of the tribulation. The rapture should not take us by surprise. It's coming at an hour you don't expect, but it should not take us by surprise. That they should not... Faithful Christians, the faithful remnant, it will not be a surprise to them when it happens. The other guys are even denying it. Now, you think these people listening to these deceivers, these false prophets like Joyner, being told there is no rapture, or Gerald Coates in England. What? <laughs> Boy, are they going to be taken by surprise. For you are all sons of light, sons of day, we're not of night, we're not of night nor of darkness. Now, this has a tremendous parallelism to the literature of the Essenes in the Qumran, in the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. You see that? Remember what we talked about yesterday? How often sobriety is contrasted to spiritual drunkenness in the last days in Joel, in Matthew 24, in First Peter? How repeatedly the Bible warns against spiritual drunkenness and urges sobriety in the last days? And today, of course, they're telling people to get drunk. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Things are getting darker, aren't they? Things are getting darker. Homosexuality being taught in the schools is normative. More and more, more and more, you know, more Christians have been persecuted and died this century than any other century. Yeah, things are getting darker, and what are they doing? Getting drunk. <laughs> the darker it gets, the drunker they get. With dissipation. They get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. And he talks here about the armor of God, having put on the breastplate of faith, connects with Ephesians, and with Isaiah 52, and love, and, and the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. Notice, once more again in this epistle, the very important distinction between tribulation and wrath. Okay? But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean obtaining it? We don't have it already? Salvation is past, present, and future. We've been saved. We've been justified. We're being saved. We're being sanctified. We shall be saved. Lift up your head. Your redemption draws nigh. We shall be redeemed. Salvation is past, present, and future. We've been saved. We are being saved. We shall be saved. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Okay? We have other tapes explaining this. Most Christians think we were saved. That's it. No, no, no. 
When somebody says, I was saved, that's it. That's their thinking. That's a convert. That's not a disciple. A disciple is, I'm being saved. I'm being sanctified. I shall be saved. You shall be redeemed. Okay? Let's look. Who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Notice it doesn't really matter if you're dead or you're alive in Christ. We shall meet him in the air. Now I can tell you this. The people who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit are going to be with Jesus before the rest of us. They'll be in heaven first. People who are cessationists and who say the gifts of the Spirit end with the apostles, they're going to be with the Lord before the rest of us. It says it right here. The dead in Christ shall rise first. <laughs> Brother John McArthur will be there before us. God bless him. I love the guy. He's just blind on one or two points, and this is one of them. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, Paul is talking about those who imitate his example. Paul didn't have a family. So because he didn't have a family, he was able to hold down a secular job much of the time. Okay? If somebody is not willing to hold down a secular job and not be paid for the ministry, he shouldn't be in the ministry. Now, a church will reach a point where they'll need somebody full time once they get big enough. Okay? But if somebody is out looking for a salary, <laughs> when a church gets big enough and they need somebody full-time, amen. Even Paul was paid for the ministry sometimes, okay? But look out for guys who are not willing to make tents. You know, I used to fill prescriptions in a pharmacy because everything I knew how to do. It's the only thing I, was, I was, knew about. That's how I supported my family and I co-led a congregation the rest of the time. Now, as only was itinerating, I'm not able to do that anymore, but I still do other things to try to take as little, you know, I don't take royalties or anything from my tapes. Or, I don't take royalties. Look out for people who turn the ministry into something it shouldn't be. Now, Paul does say elsewhere, and I don't want to go into this now, only to the point Thessalonians does, those who are in full time are worthy of double, double honor. You know what the word double honor is? Honorarian means money. Okay. The idea is if he has to look for after a congregation and a ministry and other people, he shouldn't have to worry about making ends meet himself. He doesn't need that hassle when he's looking after other people. That's what it means. Also, ministers are called to be hospitable. They have a lot more expenses than other people. The phone bills, the transportation costs, things like this of ministers are higher than other people. That's the other extreme. Ignoring what the Bible says about supporting an honest man of God, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about it from the point of view of honorarium here, but he is certainly talking about to appreciate in verse 12. To appreciate in verse 12. Okay? Now, how do you express your appreciation? <laughs> 
You need to make sure that you let that person know you value them in the Lord. You know, it means so much to... to, to, to I, I'm okay for planting churches, but you wouldn't want me for a pastor. You'd have lamb chops for dinner every night. But it means so much to a pastor. You know, when somebody gives a pastor a Christmas gift of, of, of $10, if, 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 or 20 it's not the $10 that's important. It's the fact that this person appreciates them. <laughs> it is important that honest men of God know that they are appreciated because they are attacked more than other people. They'll attack more than other people. And one of the ways the devil will attack them is, of course, financially. Now, the perversion of this is, of course, what the money preachers do. They make themselves the rich guru. That you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, again, if you're going to esteem them, make sure they're people who are worthy of being esteemed. <laughs> make sure they're the kinds of people that Sylvanus and Timothy and Paul were not the kinds of people that Paul is warning against. Those who teach error, those who teach impurity, those who teach deception because they're out for greed. You see the contrast. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. The unruly means, literally in Greek, those who are not disciples. The undisciplined. In other words, disciple even in English comes with this. Okay? Encourage the faint-hearted. In this epistle, Paul speaks of the times when he reached points of tremendous discouragement himself, as did his colleagues. One of the reasons the Lord allows us to reach the end of our ropes, one of the reasons the Lord allows us to reach points sometimes of discouragement and of emotional and spiritual weakness, is that when he sustains us in it and through it, we then become his instruments to encourage others going through it. God forbid it should happen to any of us, but who can minister to a bereaved parent other than somebody who has had that terrible tragedy in their own lives? You understand? A backslidden or an unsaved husband who runs off and leaves you, who can understand what that woman or that, that brother is going through? His wife takes off. And somebody who's gone through it. The Lord allows us to go through these things and to reach the end of our ropes because when we have, we become his vehicles of compassion in encouraging others who go through the same things at a future point. Do all things work for the better? No, they don't. All things work together for the better. Be concluding in a moment or two, let's continue. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Boy, never forget that video of Rodney Brown saying, don't pray, don't pray. Rejoice always. We can't be happy in all things. Uh, we can't be happy about all things. But we can be happy in all things. Okay? Why? Because Jesus is coming. That's always the bottom line. We have a future. We're getting out of here. We can't always thank God for all things, but we can thank God in all things. It doesn't say rejoice for tribulation. It says rejoice in it. 
in everything, not for everything, in everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Two mistakes. Suppressing the Holy Spirit. And one way the Holy Spirit is suppressed is when you outlaw charismatic gifts. However, when these gifts are manifested, they are to be examined carefully. 1 Corinthians, please, very briefly, chapter 14. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. I don't want to go into this now. We deal with it on the judge not tapes. You can get the Greek words and what they mean. Don't suppress the Holy Spirit. Don't forbid charismatic gifts, but test them. All tongues is not real. Sometimes it's demonic. Witch doctors in Africa pray in tongues. Mormons pray in tongues. Spirits is praying tongues. And look at the video again of Copeland and Rodney Brown. Tongues. It's not mainly talking about tongues here. It's talking about prophecy. Don't despise prophetic utterance. You know, it's terrible. most unfortunate. There was one of John McArthur's assistants has a website. And he was commending the ministry of Trish and John Tillen, Banner in England, on his website. But at the end, he puts on a proviso. He says... He quotes them saying, the Lord led me to lay down publishing this magazine. Well, you're led of the Lord? That's, that's the same kind of craziness as, as what you're warning again. You see what I'm saying? They don't make the distinction between true prophecy or false prophecy or true leading of the Holy Ghost or, or imagination. To them, it's basically sanctified human logic. You understand? God's leading simply becomes a matter of sanctified logic. Now, in the Bible, sanctified logic is the servant, not the master. You understand? What they're doing? They are despising prophetic utterance. They're quenching the Holy Ghost. But the other ones who just go around giving people words and they're acting on the words all the time, they're not examining everything carefully and holding fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now notice the context in which it says in verse 21, examine everything carefully, hold fast to what is good. It's talking about testing things like prophecy. There are those who are saying, well, Pensacola, we have to chew the meat and spit out the bones. We'll keep the good... No, 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 no. That's a catharsis. That gets thrown out the window. That's not what that verse means. That verse means distinguishing true prophecy from false prophecy. You understand? It's not talking about trying to sort out a mixture. If it's a mixture, you throw it out. Notice how they take a verse out of context and try to make it seem something other than what it actually says in its context. Watch, that's exactly what the devil did in Matthew 4. Taking verses out of context and trying to make them address or mean something other than what they mean in the context. A text out of context becomes a pretext. A text out of its context becomes a pretext. Now, there are atomized meanings in the Bible, but they're never extra contextual. 
if you understand them properly. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, the word form here in Greek is appearance. It doesn't mean abstain from every form of evil. That's obvious. We abstain from every form of evil. It's abstain from every appearance of evil. Every appearance of evil. You're in a a room with a a woman other than your wife or a physical relative, you leave the door open. (laughs) Counseling women, make sure you have your wife with you. (laughs) One accusation can ruin you. One. 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 You know, medical doctors are not allowed to examine or treat members of the opposite sex without somebody with them as a witness unless it's an emergency. One accusation. One false accusation is all it would take. Can ruin a doctor. Can ruin a minister. One accusation. Avoid the appearance. It's not that the thing has to be evil in itself. It's the appearance of it. In England, we have something called pubs. Now, pubs in England are not the equivalent of American bars. Pubs in England are public houses that are restaurants that will have a bar in them. It's not necessarily a place that you would associate where people would simply go to imbibe. It's a place where people would go for a pub lunch. In England, I would have no problem going to a pub for a lunch because it wouldn't hurt my testimony because in that culture, a pub doesn't mean what it does in other cultures. But in this country, I don't want to be seen hanging out in bars. Even if I'm drinking lemonade. Or ginger, it's not the evil, no. It's the appearance of it. Watch our testimony. It's not what it, it's the appearance of it. The devil's the accuser of the brethren. And he'll get other people to say things that don't mean anything. You just don't do it. It's the appearance. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Now pay attention. This is the end. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. No problem in that culture, but in ours it's the appearance of evil. (laughs) I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In conclusion, focus please on verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved. Notice three. God is triune. He makes us in his image and likeness. As you've heard me say on other tapes, there are different ways that reflect the Trinity in the way we're created. One of which, which we're not going to look at now, is, of course, marriage. If you look in the Old Testament, the consummation of a marriage is described as, in Hebrew as niknasba, going into her. One person goes inside of another person, and a third person is conceived. So you think of, of marital procreation, a baby inside of his mother. Is it one person or is it three people? 
The Hebrew word for the oneness that takes place in the marital union, Echad, is the same word for the Trinity, for the oneness of the Godhead. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Here it was rather, Lord our God is oneness. So husband and wife are one. That is one of the ways that we're, we're made in the image and likeness of God. Imagio Dei. The procreation of a marriage where somebody, where, where, where a baby is conceived by one person inside of another. That's one. But another is that we are a body. In Greek, soma. Okay. We are a soul. And we are a spirit. The Hebrew words are actually better. The body is guf. The soul is nefesh. And the spirit is ruach. Ruach. Greek, this is pneuma. But that's not important for us now. Notice it's three. A body, a soul, and a spirit. We're triune. We're three. We're a body, a soul, and a spirit. They are distinct. The body, the soul, and the spirit in verse 23. They all need to be sanctified. In Judeo-Christian theology, in the biblical understanding of the nature of man, we are triune because we are made in the image and likeness of a triune God. Okay? Three in one. In the Eastern understanding, we are two-dimensional beings. The spirit and soul are seen as one. This is true in Eastern religion, and it is true in secular psychology. Secular psychology reduces man to a two-dimensional being. It is much in common with Eastern religion, particularly Hinduism, Buddhism, and Shamanism. They both see man as bi-dimensional instead of tri-dimensional. This is important. Pay attention. Secular evolution says we're simply advanced models of apes. We're simply bi-dimensional beings, a body and a Soul, a psyche. That's the third Greek word. The Greek word for soul. I'm going to better put the Greek ones. Soma is body. Psuche, get the word psychology, is soul. And pneuma, uh, spirit, is pneuma, like pneumonia. Pneumatology, word for breath. Hebrew, it is ruach, nefesh, and guf. Like nefesh is onomatopoeia. In English, you have onomatopoeia, a word that sounds like what it does, like breathing is nefesh, nefesh. It's onomatopoeia, okay? So, biblically, we are these three-dimensional beings. Secular psychology is like evolution. It makes us two-dimensional beings. 
you have basically two forms of secular psychology, the Freudian and the Jungian. The Freudian would simply see any kind of metaphysical or religious belief as, as psychological. The Jungian would see a kind of spiritual dimension to man called the collective unconsciousness, but it's, but it's occult. It's an occult view of man, and it's still a function of the soul. So Eastern religions, like Hinduism, Buddhism, they don't see man as three-dimensional, but as two-dimensional. That's why Hinduism and stuff like this, why they see they don't eat certain animals. They believe they're the same as us. Strange things. Indians would say that, but yet they have restaurants where they serve chicken tikka or whatever. A lot of contradictions in the Hindu religion. If somebody is clinically dysfunctional, I wouldn't discourage you from getting them psychiatric help. But secular psychology, psychotherapy, even secular psychiatry can never properly work because it is treating a three-dimensional being as a two-dimensional being. Okay? God begins changing people spiritually when they're born again. And he begins changing people from the inside out. The world tries to change people from the outside in. You understand? It just doesn't work because unless somebody is born again and they're spiritually renewed, then you have the renewal of the mind. The renewal of the mind is a byproduct, a result of the renewal of the spirit. Ultimately, is the renewal of the body and the resurrection, isn't it? Amen. Ultimately, it's the renewal of the body. But it begins with the renewal of the spirit. Secular psychology can't do that, either can Eastern religion. It makes men two-dimensional beings. It reduces a three-dimensional being to a two-dimensional one. There's a tremendous amount of parallelism between secular psychology and Eastern religion. Yes. They, they drink from the same well, if you understand what they believe about the nature of man. Now, the problem is, today, you've got guys I mentioned last night, like Young E. Chow, in his book, The Fourth Dimension. He says, our subconscious imagination is our spirit. No, no. The imagination is the function of the soul, not the spirit. The spirit is distinct. distinct. And he says, you visualize what you want in the spirit and speak it into being. This is, of course, Gnosticism and man is God and all that. But... He says, Hindus and Buddhists knew this for centuries. Now Jesus has shown it to him. He's teaching shamanism. Whether that man is a Christian or not, I don't know. I know he's a heretic. I know he's a false prophet. He's not, he's, but whether he's, he's a Christian, I don't know. But I know this, what he teaches is not Christianity. What he teaches is Eastern shamanism. He teaches Buddhism. Young Chao is a Buddhist teacher. He's in no sense a biblical teacher. He's a Buddhist teacher. He's a Buddhist that's what he believes about man. Now, this is one of the most popular preachers in contemporary Pentecostalism. A man who's virtually a Buddhist in his theology. Like secular psychology, they reduce us to two-dimensional beings. So, what does secular psychology say? If it feels good, it must be right. That's what it says, doesn't it? If it feels good, it must be right. That becomes the vindication of whether it's true or false. So you'll say to people who've been to one of these crazy places, Pensacola, well, I was blessed, or he blew on me and I was so blessed. Wait a minute, that's not biblical to behave that way. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. No, I was blessed. The feeling, the experience, the emotional experience, 
that becomes equated with what's spiritual. You understand? They're making you a two-dimensional being. It's not the spirit. It's the flesh. It's the emotion. They're making you a monkey. That's why they behave like monkeys. <laughs> it's no surprise they imitate animals. It's doing the same thing. That's the way it's working. Now, this is very dangerous. Eastern religion is invading the Western Judeo-Christian world, making three-dimensional man two-dimensional. Secular psychology is trans has transformed Western society into making three-dimensional men and women bi-dimensional. But now it is in the church. You understand? Now it is in the church. Tri-dimensional men and women have become bi-dimensional. That's not what God says. What God says is, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body, may your numa and suke and soma, your ruach and nefesh and goof, spirit, soul and body, be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless.